Monday, July 29th. This is LA Podcast. We are here. We are. <laughs> we are here. Yeah. I thought Hayes was going to take over at that moment. No, I just am so hot all the time. It's sweltering. Sweltering. <laughs> That's my only real LA story was I, I went canvassing for Lorraine Lundquist up in Council District 12 today. It's sort of in the like Northridge area. In the election where she's running against uh, John Lee, the former chief of staff for Mitch Englander. I have been poisoned by the sun, maybe permanently. Yeah. I had water and like uh, prepared everything and it was still so bad. Those areas you know, are like very suburban and there is no tree cover at all. That's going to be my L.A. story, too. Okay, so uh, so uh, what should I say? There's a lot of tree cover. No, no. I mean, I was also in the valley examining tree cover. Did yeah. you go into any cool pavement areas? Well, though? this is what you have to do. It's good to be a canvasser because the only shade is right up against people's doors. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so I would kind of just, linger yeah, in those doorways. The sidewalk should go just through people's yards. Yeah, and yeah. so often I can hear people on the other side, side and yeah. like see the peephole go dark and yeah. then they just like hear their air conditioner inside, blasting like, tell their dogs to be, stop betraying that they're there <laughs> <laughs> hear the pool splashing in the yes. background made me think if i wasn't already supportive of this campaign that is running on her uh, background as an environmental scientist and shutting down aliso canyon and all these other things that are heating up our city, then I would be even more convinced now that I so, was almost if, killed by nature today. Maybe if everyone in the district canvassed for a candidate, they would see who they should pick, is what you're saying. It would be obvious yeah. that, yes. that climate change is <laughs> That was my pitch. I was like, come out here with me. You see what th this has done to me. It's I should have given you the temperature gun that I had. I was also in the valley examining heat uh -huh. this week, and I had a temperature gun. That which is just takes the temperature. It's not a gun, but it's just, okay. It's a laser. Uh -huh. It takes the temperature. Is this like a, a thermometer? Yeah, a thermometer. Okay. <laughs> I like that better. A temperature well, it's gun. A, it's a, well, if I said thermometer gun, would you know what I meant? No. Would you know what I meant? Laser. No, those two things sound. What if I said laser? Did you leave one at my house? Because we have this mysterious thing that showed up in the house that is that is like a similar item. Are people just carrying these around? It's open carry. Yeah, for temperature it's guns. completely allowed. But I just walked around the valley for a day and took the temperature of the valley. Kind of like what you did, I yeah, guess, basically. in a different way. I did see these tweets and I was very, very much enjoying them. It's alarming. Just Alyssa pointing her gun at, at things <laughs> and being like, well, that's too hot. <laughs> <laughs> it's too hot over here. Too hot. Does that extend to like if you point it at like a car hood or something at all? Well, reflective surfaces could maybe... Uh, be a little bit misleading because they're reflective in that way mm -hmm. for to a laser. Mm -hmm. But um, I think if you put your hand on it, it would still be really hot. So right. okay. it's, but the bus benches were, 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 get, were getting me places that they were, you're supposed to be waiting for the bus yeah. and they had no like shelter mm -hmm. or canopy in any or trees, but they had one of those like uh, metallic green benches that and it was 130 to 140 oh degrees to be sitting God. on it. Right. Of, course, of course you will just sit because why not? This is wow. I, I get I didn't really have an LA story, but I guess I'll I'll keep it rolling with heat and just like exposure to the elements. I uh, I went downtown yesterday and I had a very LA transit experience getting back to my house, taking the the Broadway bus, the two back or two or the four back up to Silver Lake from downtown and as I was waiting the like 15 minutes for either of those buses to show up. 
I just like was kind of watching, you know, like when you are at a bus stop where there is no shelter from the elements, where there's no shade, where there's nowhere to sit. Um, although, of course, as you're saying, Alyssa, even if there were a, a bench that were unprotected in that heat, it probably would not be an option that people would want to take. I, I was just like looking at this bus stop and I was taking pictures. I took a picture of some of the people waiting for the bus because there are so many buses on Broadway. There are an absurd number of buses that travel down Broadway every single day. And yet this bus stop had no shelter. It had no shade whatsoever, aside from the pennant advertisements for the Amundsen Theater providing just like a little rectangle. Of where, shadow. Yeah. Of shadow where you then end up with like three or four elderly women trying to squeeze into that like four square feet of shaded area. Yeah, um, you captured a phenomenon yeah. that I have not seen at, in a photo before, but when you're just waiting at that stop, you just naturally have to find whatever sign Absolutely. or uh, awning is like creating some kind of shade and you become sort of like a human clock. Yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> you you have to follow. I mean, yeah. you're going to be waiting there for anywhere between like 20 minutes to an hour or whatever. So like you have to move with the sun. It was it was quite an experience once the bus did come. I was, this is actually kind of funny. I was like, oh, well, maybe I can keep taking pictures of, uh, of these bus stops as we go by them. I didn't get a chance to do that though because there was, an ambulance at Broadway and 6th or something. I remember I got on at 7th going towards Silver Lake. It took me about 20 minutes to go two blocks, at which point I disembarked. Oh, um, and I was like, I will go to Pershing Square. I will get on the red line, which I probably should have just done in the first place because now it's taken me 35 minutes to go two blocks, <laughs> um, uh, including the weight that I had for the bus. So then I go down to Pershing Square. Of course, I had looked on uh, one of the real-time arrival apps, which are no longer really real-time for the rail, and that said the red line train will be there in four minutes. So I go hustle my ass downstairs. You hear the sound of it going away. Actually, it was worse than that because I, I got oh. down like the first flight of stairs and I'm just like seeing people and I, in the back of my head, I'm like, fuck, it's, it's too late. Yeah. So I get, I get down there. The screen still says train is going to show up in, in one minute. It does that fun thing where it just rolls right back around and is like 13 minutes. Oh. No, no train is coming. Um, so just like sitting there in the very hot subway station with a, a ton of other people, honestly, just kind of like, you know, what the hell is happening? Eventually, the train comes. The car that I got on was also not air conditioned. And you kind of are just like, what, what am I doing? Why did I, first of all, why, why did I, I live like why, this? Why did I leave my house? And second of <laughs> all, why, why do I live like this? Absolutely. Oh. So that was my, my transit odyssey for the day. That was, that was quite brutal. Brutal. What a snafu. Speaking of which. The rule is anytime we release an episode from the hour that the episode is released within 12 hours of that, the FBI will raid uh, some significant government institution yeah. in the city of L.A. So we have to wait an entire week to talk about it. This week, it was on Monday morning, uh, the FBI raided the Department of Water and Power and uh, L.A. City Hall at the same time. Uh, and everyone was sort of wondering, was this related to the Jose Huizar investigation that the FBI is currently undergoing? And it seems to be something completely separate. 
We didn't even end up talking about it on the show, although it was a pretty big issue. So back in 2013, the DWP moved to a new billing system. And many, many customers, as a result of the transition, were overbilled, some getting bills for tens of thousands of dollars. And it ended up culminating in a $67 million class action suit settlement between the utility and people who pay for utilities. What seems to have happened was that the city attorney's office, who was representing the city in this case, hired some outside lawyers, uh, a guy named Paul Paradis uh, was someone who shows up a lot in this story, uh, hires this outside lawyer who was simultaneously representing the claimant yeah. in the case. So is literally on, on both sides <laughs> of this issue and had set up profit for himself of tens of millions of dollars, it looks like, as a result of this settlement. I think he and his partner ended up with, uh, I think the deal was that they would get 20% or something like that of the of the final settlement, while also being paid by the city to litigate this case. Seems to be pretty open and shut. Corruption, one wonders why they thought they would get away with this in the, per in the first place. It's so obviously illegal. But this is also something that was sort of known for a long time. So you wonder, like, sort of why it would take so long for yeah. the FBI to build a case about this, uh, because people were have been writing. It's been in the news for for months that this was revealed. I mean, th this is interesting, too, because the actual allegations became public first as a result of the city's lawsuit against the consulting firm PricewaterhouseCoopers, who, who then did their own digging, basically and said, this person, this lawyer that you've retained to represent you yep. also was uh, representing the party, the class action party suing you. And then in the LA Times, Dakota Smith also mentions that the same attorney got a no-bid contract in order to help them comply with the terms yes. of the class action settlement. These, this attorney is based in New York, by the way. This is okay, not, yeah. yeah, like a local... I mean, even if it were, know, it's but. it's like, first of all, anytime in city politics, uh, you see something related to the expenditure of tens of millions or more dollars, and it's a no bid contract work that is going to raise some red flags. And mm -hmm. there should be, I think it's due diligence for city officials, in this case, the city attorney's office and the LADWP to be able to explain why it is that you are going to pay a huge sum of money to an individual without requesting that they establish their bona fides, establish that they don't have a conflict of interest mm -hmm. that could later become a black eye for the city. You know, those are the kind of things that the bidding process will routinely uncover if they exist. So going out for contracted services without a bidding process does rightly or wrongly, already from the start, give the appearance that there is potentially some sort of sweetheart uh, backroom deal going on, which in this case seems to be fully justified. Right. So, Alyssa, who is getting hit with the fallout from this, uh, well, this FBI raid? Well, the, I think the, the dreams are dashed for the city attorney who was floated, I think, as a pretty serious front runner in a not-to-be-announced-yet mayoral race for mm -hmm. a certain city. Yeah. 
That's a, 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 a self-floating. <laughs> really. Self-floated. He, he floated himself. <laughs> he bought a helium tank for a trial no, balloon. No, you shouldn't use helium. <laughs> That's right. I know. No Let's more see. helium. Yeah. That's another investigation by the FBI. This is city attorney Mike Fewer, who, yeah, had said in the past that he was maybe going to run for mayor. Obviously, he had signed off on these hirings and is, yeah, somewhat tainted by this FBI raid on his office. Right. There was a just a Dakota Smith story in the LA Times where it was recounting him talking about the case that you were just talking about earlier. And he was like, bring it on, you know, to, to try to fight me on this or whatever. And he, they brought it on. I mean, his response, as, as far as I've seen, has been mostly that he is in favor of, you know, like the responsible parties being held accountable. And he doesn't, at least publicly, of course, has not said that he is one of those responsible parties. Mm -hmm. He has said any you know, ethical breach in this case was the responsibility of, how do you say his last name? Paradis? I, I don't know exactly. Yeah. Uh, the, the lawyer who was accused of, of double dealing basically and a high level official in the, in the city attorney's office, but not rising to the level of himself personally. He says he wasn't involved in the decision to retain him. But these allegations basically that the city is going to, at the same time, shift the blame to PricewaterhouseCoopers and also use this lawyer to negotiate favorable terms for themselves in the class action lawsuit, which the LA Times has been reporting also over the course of the past week that the payouts for the class action settlement are possibly vastly undercalculated that people have. Wow. So, so we could even see, you might actually expect that we're going to see another round of lawsuits with regards to payouts from the utility to ratepayers because it does seem as though whatever went on as a part of the litigating of this class action lawsuit was not actually held forth in the best interest of ratepayers. Mm -hmm. Seems like it'd be a good way to lower your payout to hire the lawyer representing the claimant yeah. to work for you in right. a case where they're pretty much guaranteed to get like tens of millions of dollars out of it. Yeah, no, yeah, uh, sure, yeah. Perhaps you, you don't have to like pursue let's say a hundred plus million dollar payout for the city because what a surprise, you know, like we have this other uh, litigation that's going forward against the consultant. We'll hire you to do that. And also we'll hire you to, for this no bid contract that we'll just give you this work. <laughs> yeah. um, it does raise a lot of suspicion and you have to wonder for fewer. I keep saying I want a recurring segment where we just talk about the scandals of the people who are, like if you think about it, I mean, we Caruso with the academic. Fraud, oh right, yeah, you sure. like everybody who is running or thinking about running. Oh, okay, for so let's mayor. have a yeah, let's have a we take a, take them down before they declare Get some kind of scandal watch just for mayoral candidates because they are. <laughs> and in the midst of all this, so we're watching on Twitter like all these videos of the FBI people going in with their just nice little luggage, rolling you know, pull, luggage, roll, rolling oh luggage into God. the front of the I DMV mean, building. People with like plastic shields and stuff. And yeah, yeah they're just like just kind of one checking into their hotel. Yeah. <laughs> and in the midst of this, they announced that the, well, I mean, the, the DWP chief was already going to step down, but the announcement came through in the midst of it. Like, yeah, this like is done. Day, yeah, this is happening. Yeah, Gar Garcetti uh, uh, terminated his tenure uh, prematurely by a couple months at the, the DWP. You do have to wonder, you know, that this is the FBI could basically 
permanently set up shop in City Hall at this rate and in the Civic Center. Let's Are they scared of space. getting typhus? Is that? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and you kind of just you do have to wonder, like my, my immediate reaction to this is all of this seems to speak to just like a, a culture of pervasive corruption. Again, as with the, the City Hall, the Huizar and City Council scandal, Mayor Garcetti has said that he believes that whoever is involved in this should be held responsible to the fullest extent of the law. He supports these investigations, which is the right response. Like that's that's what you would hope to hear. But at the same time, I mean, like, what do you guys think? It's, it's like, how does this environment function without most of the major players in City Hall being on some level aware of these kind of goings on? Yeah, I mean, whether or not they're aware, I think if they're unaware, that's an indictment mm-hmm. in itself. Mm-hmm. And I think you could combine that with, his reputation as sort of an absentee mayor over the last Correct, few years yeah. when a lot of this stuff was actively going on. Right. And it's obviously worse if people at high levels in City Hall did know about this stuff and did nothing about it. But either way, I mean, there's no good version of it. I right. mean, and it seems like this stuff is happening so out in the open. Yeah. And that, that is the crazy thing because we have the double dealing accusations that came out from PricewaterhouseCooper in response to the city's lawsuit against them, that's all been, yeah, that's been in the news for years at yeah. this point. And the response of city officials has kind of been muted. It, mm-hmm. It's been basically like, there does seem to be a sense of just like general untouchability. Like this is this is the way that we're going to operate. And you do wonder if that's going to change with the high level of scrutiny that they are now attracting from federal law enforcement. But I guess we have to wait to see whether or not there will be arrests stemming from this. And also just the fact that it's now where we've got the utilities and we'll talk more about utilities in a minute. Mm -hmm. But like the fact that these people who are running DWP right now really need to be focusing on the two maybe, maybe biggest crises that are facing our city right now. Climate change is going to severely affect our ability to have water and power and, <laughs> and if grid. we are going to like be dealing with this and we we have all these resources devoted to, you know, accommodating F- <laughs> which is also putting a burden on the grid at <laughs> right. the same time. Yeah. We can't spend that energy doing that. <laughs> Unrelatedly, I had um, 200,000 fewer for mayor t-shirts printed that are now uh, the best offer, whatever uh, for, for the entire palette. You just have to come get them yourself. <laughs> Uh, here's a story from uh, that w- w- came up on July 15th in the New York Times by Tim Arango uh, about Nipsey Hussle that we didn't get to last week but want to talk about now. So we mentioned at the time when uh, Nipsey Hussle was murdered, there was a race among people in City Hall and the police department to step forward and say, oh, Nipsey Hussle, we, he and I had a personal yeah. relationship and yep. we were working together to make the city a better place and uh, it's so awful what happened to him and just to b- basically create a connection between themselves and this person who was a hero to so many people who was killed. Now it is revealed that at the same, at the time Nipsey Hussle was killed, he was being investigated by the police department and the city attorney's office Yeah, specifically. And if anything was as held up and uh, lionized after uh, Nipsey Hussle's death as Nipsey himself, it was the marathon store as a place helping the community and hiring people locally and all the plans he had to develop that area into this wonderful multi-use space. They were investigating that strip mall itself, like that store, whether it was a hub for gang activity. And even after he was killed, the investigation 
continues. There, there's still the possibility. There's, it's not a closed investigation. They still could take action against Nipsey Hussle's business partners who, who, who still own the property. Uh, and they have actually been pressured, that the, the owners of that property, his former landlords, to evict the Marathon store from that property because they felt like there was too much gang activity going on there. That culminated, actually, in the landlord selling the property to Nipsey Hussle and his business partners. Right. Why? Yeah, I, I, I think the way that you, the way that you contextualize this, where at the time of Nipsey Hussle's death, at the time of his murder, the real stampede among, so you had Steve Soberoff, chief of the, the board of police commissioners, uh, the chief of the LAPD, Michael Moore, Eric Garcetti. You had so many white politicians coming out and saying this was a young person who exemplified uh, what it means to be an Angelino, um, a message of uplift for Black Los Angeles, somebody who cared tremendously about his community and all of the things that it is like right and good for an Angelino to be. This news, and it, it is curious to me that this is I should say, being reported first in the New York Times and not in the LA Times, which also did a tremendous amount of coverage. They did. That was a miss. That was definitely a miss. Um, uh, so the fact that this is coming out in the New York Times is a, is a bit interesting, but it is an extremely salient part of the picture yeah. uh, of what we're talking about in the in the wake of Nipsey Hussle's death. I think there are questions to be asked. I, I, I do have my own suspicions as to what the answers are, but there are definitely questions that should be asked about why is it that in death, Nipsey Hussle makes a figure that is so easy for politicians and political appointees to latch onto, whereas in life, despite the fact that he was doing the same things that he would be lauded for after his death, he was a target of suspicion and a target of investigation. He was multiple times in his store arrested and or harangued by LAPD. And that's something that we talked about when he passed, too. I, I said in a, a previous episode that I, I feel like there was a real uh, immediate co-optation and appropriation of the things that Nipsey Hussle stood for and the things that he spoke about in his music by city officials, by the police, as a way of saying, like, this person's memory belongs to a to a legacy of almost like an imaginary LAPD, which is much more, uh, much more like willing to engage in terms of partnership with yeah. the black community in LA than, than is really borne out by real life events. Uh, and this kind of just nails that home. It really just hammers that point in uh, because that, that was just not the, the relationship that existed. And to the extent that it was the relationship it was because Nipsey Hussle was an exceptionally big-hearted person who was willing to put aside the number of times that he had been shamed and humiliated by the LAPD, the number of times that he had been harassed in his own neighborhood by the LAPD, and to still see the benefit in trying to work to improve conditions in Crenshaw. So that, that to me, is, is the story much more so than like Steve Soberoff being like, oh, I can't believe Nipsey's gone. You know, like that, that to me just always felt false. And now it, it just seems egregious. So, so much of this story, we played a clip uh, in the episode after he was killed where, about him talking about gang injunctions. 
uh, and how it makes it so difficult for people with past yeah. uh, right. like affiliating with gangs, real or imagined by the LAPD, uh, to sort of move on with their lives. Gang injunctions are such a huge part of this story because the accusation by the police and the investigation against the Marathon store was it was a place where a mm-hmm. lot of people with gang affiliations were coming, including Nipsey Hussle himself. And this is actually the same reason that Carrie Lathan was uh, arrested. Yeah. The guy that was wounded in the same shooting was brought to the hospital and arrested from there for being in the same place as Nipsey Hussle, yeah. as two people that had previous gang affiliations. So the question this raises for me, there's a quote in the Times article from Georgia Leap, a professor at UCLA who works with gang members, says, I think ultimately Nipsey Hussle did represent a model of anti-gentrification, keeping the neighborhood in the hands of the neighborhood. But people in those areas all have pasts. What does that mean for community centers or the places that like politicians talk about putting in place uh-huh. where people can gather to get them like out of gangs? Or to like get kids on the right track or whatever it is. If they're not allowed to all appear in a positive space, which now like people hold up the marathon store as one of these places that wanted to employ people, that wanted to get like put people in training yep. programs. Like if they're not allowed to associate in these spaces, it's like what are people supposed to do who want to like do something about like the, the, like this problem in their neighborhoods yeah no I, I that's absolutely correct I, th- I think that the tension that exists between the theoretical stance of the city that these are places that should exist and the actual policies put in place which are all intended to disperse the community to disperse the population of people not just in south la but of course that's the area we're talking about right now but everywhere that the the gang junctions were put in place the real effect is to make it very difficult for uh, coherent communities to continue to exist. Yep. And you do, I mean, that, that wholly does seem to be the point. You have in this article, the same New York Times article, you have fewer, Mike Fewer, a city attorney's office saying that these types of like nuisance abatement probes, the kind of which got uh, Nipsey Hussle uh, harassed in his own store on basically on false pretenses, which he would post about on social media right. before he was killed. Those are things that the city attorney's office is still saying are important for them because they disrupt gang mm-hmm. autonomy, you know, in, in these places. And so the fact that even though the gang injunctions are gone, we're still living under this de facto regime of trying to disrupt any community yeah. of color from being able to like exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, is is incredibly troubling. Uh, that does seem to be the the standard mode of of operating still. Tough couple of weeks for Mike Fewer. Again, these t shirts <laughs> are so soft. Alyssa, what's going on? Let's get back to utilities. But instead of the DWP, the other bill that we pay every we month. A, well, unless you've gone electric, maybe you you could just not have to pay your gas bill. Well, so I'm actually in favor of balanced energy solutions. Oh, oh, are you? Are you? Are you into bridged fuels? <laughs> <laughs> What's going on with uh, this is another paper that came in and a bunch of carpetbaggers scooping all our local stories. Well, this this, week. The, the, the reporter for this, Susie Hegel, who's great. She does like a lot of energy coverage for The Guardian and all over the I'm sure other people have reported this, but she's great because I think she really has an interesting perspective tying coverage of fires and, you know, methane explosions and natural gas, whatever explosions and fires that you yeah. could experience in Southern California and Northern California, which are a lot. 
But there's this new effort from to kind of pretend or make it seem like the people are demanding that we should not eliminate natural gas from our I don't know what portfolio yeah. <laughs> of energy solutions. Right. And we've talked a lot about the gas plants that are closing, but yet we are still going to maybe get some from across state lines. There's a lot of talk about, you know, which fuels we need to be switching to immediately. And for example, in Berkeley, which has other issues related to not being able to build more housing, but they will, if you build new housing, you are only allowed to put electrical hookups into it. The idea is like no more gas lines are going to be going into these uh-huh. neighborhoods or new developments or new condo buildings, everything. And I think our Green New Deal says something like that, but the goal is probably like 2060 or something like that. Yeah. So this idea that we do need to actually stop using all fossil fuels immediately. And a good way to do that would be to make it stop (laughs) from, you know, into our homes, you know, already make that decision. So this is kind of a disingenuous effort. So what is this effort? This is SoCal Gas, a subsidiary of Sempra Energy, one of the biggest gas companies in the country. How are they pretending to have this grassroots movement for diversified energy (laughs) solutions? I mean, this is pretty much textbook astroturfing. Like if ever that term uh, were warranted, it would be right now. I don't want to say astroturfing is actually more environmentally friendly. (laughs) (laughs) That you're at least replacing the grass. Yeah, I mean, I would call it, you know, gaslighting. <laughs> That's good. I like that. So basically what, what we have is is this fake group, Californians for Balanced Energy Solutions, mm-hmm. the premise of which I just, it I, makes I, me, I adore. It just so invigorates me uh, <laughs> to just <laughs> like go storm City Hall in favor of Balanced Energy Solutions. You know, it is, it's, it's the thing that everyone's talking about in their coffee shop every day. Like, why aren't our energy solutions more balanced? This is, it's great too, because the organization itself, which has been receiving all of its payments for operating funding and everything else from SoCal Gas mm-hmm. for over a year now, this is an organization that The Guardian found documents revealing that the things that they're saying, reliance on renewable gas sources can be used to, uh, quote unquote, balance our, as you said, Alyssa, our portfolio of like where biogas we're getting. Our, yes, from exactly. cow poop and stuff. Even even this group, even Californians for Balanced Energy Solutions is is admitting that that is not actually a sustainable approach. Well, yeah, people on the board of the group, I guess, who represent biogas are saying we like it's a, a better option than some other fuels, mm-hmm. but it's not going to get us to sustainability if we just use biogas. It's just it's too late. I mean, we it's could have late. talked about that a long time ago. Too late. It's and, not yeah, it's yeah. not a significant enough source of replacement fuel. And also, like you're saying, we can't shift towards that. We need to go much further than that. So this does seem like this group is like looking for a balance between things that they admit work and things that they do not work. So here's what (laughs) Californians for Balanced Energy Solutions has been doing, this SoCal Gas front group. They're going to neighborhood councils. Yeah. And they're putting out these like resolutions from the neighborhood to try and encourage actual grassroots support in favor of these movements. I have one of the resolutions uh, that they took to the Boyle Heights Neighborhood Council. I can read a little bit of it. California's energy policies are critical to reducing greenhouse gas emissions and reducing the impact of climate change on our citizens. However, (laughs) (laughs) the state legislature and state agencies are promoting new legislations and regulations eliminating choice of energy resources by imposing technology mandates to power buildings and public and private fleets, including transit and long-haul trucking. These mandates are concerning Uh for the following reasons. 
Technology mandates for energy do not take into consideration the material health, safety, and well-being of the city's most vulnerable residents who live on fixed incomes, including the elderly and working families who are struggling financially. Bold to invoke health and safety. Yeah, In what does that have to do with it? To, to say that like low what low income people need is is not solutions that get us to zero carbon uh when emissions. there's a gas refinery like across the river that's and like blowing five fucking freeways <laughs> yeah like, like every single from every single angle oh you my, would be okay. it. number two building and vehicle technology mandates eliminate fill in the blank choice what's the ba- other one balance customer choice is one what's the first one freedom building and vehicle technology mandates from the state eliminate you know this me Yes. Local control. Correct. Oh. Local control and customer choice. Suppress yeah. innovation, reduce reliability, and unnecessarily increase costs for Los Angeles. We are going to be literally drowning in local control before long. Maybe we can use it to power our homes. There's so much of it. That's funny that they bring public transit into it as Metro started up its first electric bus this week and mm-hmm. is converting the fleet as we speak. So. Number three, relying on a single energy delivery system unnecessarily increases vulnerabilities to natural and man-made disasters, whereas a diversity of energy delivery systems and resources contribute to greater reliability and community resilience. Okay, okay so, so that's, the, yeah. <laughs> they're taking these to neighborhood councils and getting people to sponsor them. Trying to get the neighborhood councils to pass these resolutions. Yeah, by, by say, saying, we, we are, want freedom. Yes. We are Californians and we are just, cons- we have some concerns about these yes. mandates. Okay. Alyssa, talk about vulnerabilities to natural and man-made disasters. I was just going to say they're going to use the example of like wildfires or say like utility lines like sparking and causing fires or falling down in extreme weather events or whatever um, and that their pipelines might be more reliable yeah, or that famously you can invulnerable to natural disasters <laughs> yeah, they've <gas> never pipelines. <laughs> they've never done anything and certainly bad. there's no recent history of them no. causing <laughs> say the worst environmental disaster no. since Deepwater Horizon in the city of Los Angeles yeah. ja, I mean well to me the, the encouraging thing about this is it shows fear just the fact that they feel like they have to go out and drum up support for this means that they're trying to mm-hmm. like stem the tide. But what it also says to me is any politician who is working with SoCal Gas in a friendly way, this has become an adversarial entity. Immediately, immediately yes. right? And and this is this is like the fact that we're finding out about this after it's already been going on for a year now mm-hmm. is troubling. And you kind of wonder what else there might be that we don't know about, about the ways in which this largest public gas utility is spending its money to counteract the necessary climate change uh, mobilization that the state is trying to enact. I, I do like, I, I think there's a useful comparison setting even aside the DWP corruption scandal that is is unfolding before us. Uh, there's a useful comparison to the the actual private utilities in the northern part of the state, PG&E, and then down here, SoCal Edison. The, yeah. the fact that Wall Street was successful in, in pushing Sacramento to establish a quasi bailout fund on a rolling basis to reduce the, the corporate liability of those entities as wildfires get worse as a result of climate change. Now we have a separate, large, private utility. And you kind of wonder, as they are working to stop progress towards carbon neutrality, mm-hmm. what needs to happen to, uh, like, what changes actually need to take place so that we can hold these energy companies 
to account so that we can make sure that they are not able to stand in the way of, of our progress. I, I think this reporting does a very good job of shining light on this because now when somebody comes from this group or, or any other to a neighborhood council meeting and starts speaking in these terms, I think it will be more widely understood that this, yep. these are not like sentiments that are, are generally held among the public, but, but it is concerning, I think, uh, as a trend that we're seeing in private utility spaces. We haven't talked about the AIDS Healthcare Foundation in a while. And Alyssa, I decided to mix it up online a little bit with the AIDS Healthcare Foundation and in an article for Curbed. What's going This is an organization. To, I just for, love the Beatles. I mean, I, I don't want to see... I want to see the Beatles being invoked. This is an organization uh, and their subsidiary coalition to preserve L.A. that has fought for less multifamily housing in the city over the last three or so years. What is the story from this week, Alyssa? I think the first reaction from a lot of people who maybe didn't know what's been going on in Hollywood is that people thought that Amoeba music was getting torn down. So a skyscraper could be built on the site that, that their landlords had kicked them out yeah i mean i think even some of the headlines even reflected that it was like they were being you know displaced they were being kicked out removed whatever demolished and ahf is uh has brought a lawsuit against they've tried several times to stop this development from happening and uh they've now brought a lawsuit where they are trying to make the same arguments they've been making for a while but the new one is that Amoeba should is a historic cultural landmark that should be protected by the city and should should not be torn down. But if you had been following it a little bit more closely over the last few years, uh, I think what many people didn't know is that Amoeba's owners and founders uh, sold their building in 2015 for quite a bit of money, more than you would get for taking in your used CDs to mm-hmm. um, Amoeba. $35 million. $35 million. And, um, Got a lot of old CDs. <laughs> <laughs> the build, new building has a, kind of looks like stacked CDs. Like, <laughs> And we're not getting displaced. They're not, we're not getting kicked out. They made this decision. They had, they're going to move to a new location in Hollywood. They were excited about it. They had been interviewed about it. Um, and so all of a sudden, now I think their appeals process had, had run out and this is kind of kind of a last ditch effort to stop this building from being built. So this has been in motion for three years. I think a lot of people just kind of learned about it this week yep. and were very upset to learn that Amoeba is moving, but maybe would be less upset if they knew that Amoeba made $35 million mm-hmm. to move, which is good, great for them. I mean, I'm happy that they can continue to sell right. music and also weed apparently at their new location. Wow. Yeah, I mean, gotta, gotta make ends meet somehow. So what, <laughs> on what basis uh, did AHF claim that this was a historical cultural so monument. So the, the applications for these things, and we've talked a lot about various efforts to protect places like gas stations and um, other maybe not notable buildings, but they have a historic or cultural reason to be protected, right? So it doesn't, it doesn't really matter that the building is only 18 years old. I think many people don't know that fact also. They, yeah. a lot of people were saying this is a this is a building that they've been to for decades and it's, it's always <laughs> You can see it's it in, in, in one spot at a time in Hollywood. They go to a bit of music. I mean, I think maybe people were thinking like Tower Records and yeah. Amoeba music, same, anything. But it's only been there for 18 years, even though it looks kind of retro and, yeah. ha- and they've added a lot of neon to the facade. So the argument that the, the application is making and the application is a thousand pages long. Some of these things are very long. I I'm ashamed to say that I did read most of it. 
And the argument they're making is not really about the cultural relevance of it, which is kind of surprising. It's more about the neon, which was obviously (laughs) just made 18 years ago and is fine. And then some murals. Mm-hmm. There's a lot in there about other buildings that, are, the, not, then, that are not the building. That was the, like the next thing I was going to say. So the, the location itself is relevant because it's close to Capitol Records. Right. And it's close to a music store it's that a, it's was sunset, down. It's Sunset and Vine. Everything that uh, Yeah, that there is were recording near, studio. Oh, yeah. You know, things the were there. The grill is there. <laughs> yeah. Ground, groundwork. Coffee. Sushi. <laughs> yeah. Jack in the Box across the street. I mean. Which is also being torn Which down. is also being torn down, which we will fight to protect that another day. But the thing that was so shocking to me reading this document, which is has a lot of errors actually, and looks like it needed a proofreader. It's a thousand um, pages long. You I mean, it's a thousand pages long. Yep. A lot of it, about 200 pages are about um, the history of audio formats. Mm. Yeah, the, the history, which is a good reason to protect yeah, the building. building. Yeah. But the, the, I think you actually could have made a good case that Amoeba is like a cultural monument because like when everybody comes to town, every single person performs there. And there's Such been like... As. I mean, I don't know. Name anybody. Well, you know, one, the, they cited in the article. Well, that's the thing. They only, they focus on this one performance by Paul McCartney. Sir Paul McCartney, please. Sir Paul McCartney as a reason for it to be preserved, which I, I just feel like picking like literally the whitest boomerist dude uh-huh. to try to make this argument um, for protecting a place that there have been like political rallies. There's been like well, people Well, think, think about who speeches. the coalition to preserve LA is I mean it's not like they were going to pick like a fucking little peep show or something <laughs> you know like <laughs> so, so yeah, I, yeah I, I so it comes off as an application that was created perhaps in haste or perhaps not very well thought out or even consulting the types of people that might have helped them to make a stronger argument, which is why it's just a little bit troubling. They've had these lawsuits four or five times in Hollywood, and they also did the same thing for Parker Center downtown. If you remember, they tried to save the building from being demolished to make some argument that like Eric Arcetti should have homeless housing in his backyard or something, right. and they wanted yep. to convert to homeless housing, even though everybody said it's not really cost-effective, we need to tear this down, also has problematic history. But the Amoeba building itself, I think is a really interesting, it's a last ditch, attempt to try to stop this development. And yes, the building is kind of a horrible, the new building is just like this very generic, very boring, has this huge parking podium. It has way too many, um, you know, market rate units compared to what it could have done more for more affordable units. It only has 5% very low income units. They are paying money into an affordable housing fund for the neighborhood, but let's fight it on on those grounds or try to make it better at least, or or try to do something that doesn't try to bring in the kind of like an important cultural legacy of musicians and music in the city. Yes, that I mean, you were saying this in your article and online, the building itself is not worth defending. Uh, and there are cases to be made about absolutely having more affordable units in it. Right. But the practice of trying to get historic designation on buildings that could otherwise be used for more affordable housing is incredibly damaging. It's exactly what that guy Doug Haynes is doing with the old spaghetti factory building and for a new path project. He uses those kind of tactics to stop supportive housing all the time. So if you normalize this process of any building where housing is going up, someone can sue based on giving it historic designation because it's close to the Cinerama Dome. Like that's the tell for me about what AHF cares about. They do not care about affordable housing or if they do, it's about not having more of it in those neighborhoods. They're fighting to preserve the parking lot. 
at the yeah, I mean, that, that's because the, thing of the murals there. Right. There's murals in the parking lot behind Amoeba. And I think that there could even be room for a potential compromise if there's a lot of these buildings, including ones in Hollywood that are kind of built around um, historic buildings. They kind of left them intact right. and add the things around and on top of them. And there there could be room for that. But the, the reason they chose specifically to protect the murals in place is that no walls can be covered or moved yes. in any way to add anything else to the site. Yeah. So say they won. Yep. Say they win this lawsuit. Amoeba has moved. They've sold the building. They're not coming back. So you just have this building sitting there, much like the old spaghetti factory has been for years, uh, where no affordable housing, nothing can be built on this not spot. suitable for anything other than a big box store. And there aren't really that many new ones of those going in. Not really something that you want going in in the middle of Hollywood at this point anyway. Yes. So there's a huge difference between fighting for more affordable units in a structure and fighting to keep that structure there exactly the way it is. And that's what is so indefensible about this kind of lawsuit. And there is flexibility. And they did in their earlier, you know, pleas to the council and the planning commission, which, you know, are, are valid, you know, are... 5% 5% very low income units better than 15% moderately low income units. You know, you can look at those things and debate their merits. And you could say, yes, when this building went in 18 years ago, we should have had a better community plan for Hollywood that would have said, hey, you can't just build a two story building on Sunset Boulevard right. with that, with nothing on top of it. But let's go back and remember AHF has fought the Hollywood community plan, including uh, hiring a lawyer who was doing some of the similar lawsuits that we were talking about, Robert Silverstein. So we have this sustained effort to try to stop any kind of planning progress happening in the neighborhood uh, that would maybe help to build like a denser and more transit friendly environment. Yeah. And I, I think it's important to separate. There are distinct groups that find themselves more or less aligned on, on these kind of fights. You have Michael Weinstein, who is uh, um, Weinstein, I always get it backwards, whatever. He is essentially just an egomaniac. Like, I I really don't, I don't think there's a credible case to be made that he is a defender of affordable housing or tenants' rights, etc. I just, I don't buy it or see it. He seems like he's a person who is bombastic and enjoys fighting with the city and really gets a personal thrill out of possibly being able to win these fights, particularly as with this building, as with the building that Crescent Heights was developing that set off the Measure S battle. Uh, that was Those buildings are very close to where his office is and potentially obstruct his lordly views of the LA Basin. Mm-hmm. So that is, that's group one. I think he's pretty lonely in that group. Then you have people like Jill Stewart and Doug Haynes, who we, we just mentioned with La Mirada Neighborhood uh, Association. Those people are also not pro-tenant. They are just basically very privileged people who think that the city of LA is fine as it is, should never change, should never build another unit for anyone and anyone who can't afford it should just get the hell out. That is their essential position. Mm-hmm. And then the, the third group is, is the group that I think is is a bit more uh, legitimately founded, which is those who are concerned specifically about the impacts of gentrification on displacement. Even this group, though, I think when you're talking about Hollywood, when you're talking about central Hollywood, this is not a low income part of Hollywood. I mean, you can talk about indirect displacement effects. And and certainly I think there is a concern, as Alyssa was saying, about the failure of the city to require sufficient low income units to be built in this new development. But the fact of the matter is 
that when we talk about this area of Sunset and Vine and all of these um, relatively, I would say they are far past the midway point of gentrification. $30,000 a month condos, right? Think? Yeah, of, of Hollywood. Like this is a place where it would be very good to introduce new housing supply. Um, when, you, when you talk about these places that are more or less already gentrified, but there is still uh, development pressure, uh, you can reduce the amount of uh, the vehicle miles traveled by citing people closer to a job center in Hollywood. You can alleviate pressure in low, actual low income parts of Hollywood and East Hollywood by building where the, the high dollar demand is. That being said, I, I, what I think is the most interesting part of this, as you were bringing up, Alyssa, like the huge amount of parking that is being introduced here so close to the red line. For a long time, I've been like really adamant that we're not moving fast enough on uh, as a city on uh, eliminating parking minimums. But like this kind of thing makes me feel like we need to go further than that and actually have parking maximums. And like that is kind of where I'm like, you should not be allowed to build floors no, and floors of no. parking, regardless of who it's for in the middle of Hollywood. That's a terrible idea. It will have terrible impacts for decades. And if they weren't forced to build all those floors of parking, right? they could build maybe more housing. It wouldn't be yeah. as expensive to build parking points. But I have a feeling they would have trouble with not having enough parking. The, the critics might be afraid that there wouldn't be enough parking spaces, that it would create traffic gridlock or something on the streets of I think you might be right. <laughs> uh, we have to welcome some new journalists to the city. New York Times Styles is sending two editors to LA to, to cover the city, uh, which they I thought they were doing a great job from there, honestly. <laughs> but they are, and, they, and at the same time, they're also hiring three temporary full-time journalists, one of whom is friend of the show, Daniel Hernandez, former editor of LA Taco, who has stepped down and was replaced by Javier Cabral. Uh, and uh, Daniel is taking the New York Times job. Uh, also, two other reporters who we have not had as guests on the show before, but maybe we'll, we will soon. What kinds of stories are? Do you think that they're? Do you have any pitches for like stories? They, yeah, they are. They they said they are looking for pitches. So send them your your ideas because maybe if they're here, they'll understand why certain stories are a better fit for a New York publication coming to LA. But I think it's interesting that it's the style section, mm -hmm. which is great. We welcome all styles based coverage of the city. But I was just, I'm just laughing. I mean, first of all, someone should tell them that they're coming here at the hottest months of the year, uh -huh. hottest and fieriest months. And it's not going to be like the summer camp um, Instagram experience that they're probably wishing it will be. I'm, I'm happy they're hiring local people, including Daniel, which is super exciting. Um, but I just kept laughing, envisioning what it would be like if the LA Times made a similar announcement. That would be so funny. <laughs> like if we were going to that would be just New great. York for three months to just like see what's up. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's great that they hired three non-white reporters because a lot of the coverage from the Times that has been criticized has been very white focused, like the famous article about how Angelinos don't eat gluten uh -huh. or the one about how weed culture in the city has become about like uh, Mad Hatter style tea parties where the Olvera Street one scone edibles, the Olvera Street, that one was pretty much take your pick. Yes, it's, it's not great. So it'll be good if they get this one right and we get some good stories about it and obviously super excited to see Daniel's byline. Thank you so much for listening and please listen again next week to LA Podcast, which is this show. Goodbye.